Well, and out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me as we begin reading from our text this morning, 1 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, before we seek to hear from you in your word, we come to you in prayer to acknowledge our need for your mercy and for your grace, that we might not simply hear but obey. For it is in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul, after being released from prison, having been falsely accused of taking a Gentile into an area of the temple reserved for the Jews, leaves Rome. And he takes Timothy, who has been there with him at the, uh, under house arrest, he takes him to Ephesus. Ephesus is an important town. It's, a, it's the crossroad city in Asia Minor that connects all of Europe with all of Asia. And the reason he goes there is Paul has written them a letter the year before. And he is particularly offended by the reports that have come back about these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They've been misleading people with a bunch of nonsense, myths and and genealogies from the Old Testament. And he has gone there simply to remove them. He takes them out of the church. He turns them over to Satan. Not for judgment, but to teach them not to blaspheme the Lord. It's a chastening that is done in love. Not out of, out of spite. And, and because of the condition of the church due to Hymenaeus and Alexander, he leaves Timothy there to kind of straighten this church out. And Paul can't stay there. He stayed with them for three years earlier to be their pastor. But now he's got to go up and deal with another issue. It's over north of Greece in what's called Macedonia in a church called Philippi. And so he's headed there. But even though he is leaving Timothy, he does not forget Timothy. He writes to him, encouraging and instructing him. And this is what needs to be done. He has said, look, first of all, you need to get the gospel right. This is chapter one. You need to fight the good fight. And number three, you need to never surrender to the demonic realm that's constantly seeking to infiltrate the church. Now, that's what you need to do. But where is Timothy to start? Where is he to start? Well, he tells him, first of all, you need to maintain a right perspective and you need to attack this problem in the right way. So if you look down in your Bibles in 1 Timothy 2, you find that the first eight verses are polemic in nature. You see verse 1, pray for all men. Verse 4, the Lord desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 8, therefore offer your prayers in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Now we are not going to cover all eight verses this morning. But the Lord is immutable, right? He is immutably holy. He does not change. So his instructions through the Apostle Paul to Timothy for that church is just as relevant, 
just as practical and just as necessary today for his church as it was when the Holy Spirit first gave it to the church. Now, if we as a church truly honor the Lord, here is the perspective we've got to maintain. We have to maintain this. There is to be, listen, there is to be no exclusivity within the church. None. You saw back in chapter 1, there were Jews who were trying to teach a, a, a legalism, bring back in a form of Judaism within the church. There were also Gentiles who were teaching uh, exclusivity uh, among this Gnostic nonsense that was uh, saying that, you, you know, if you engaged in these mystical experiences, you were somehow more in the know than those who did not do that. And so you've got both Jew and Gentile doing this. You've got Jewish legalism and you've got Gentile mysticism. And then you've got these folks that had been taught by Hymenaeus and Alexander to... Uh, uh, believe that these myths and these silly stories from Old Testament genealogies somehow or another put them more in the know than the rest of the people. Lots of people being puffed up by all that they knew. They may have believed that Jesus is the Christ, but man, this church is struggling. They're struggling in their walk with the Lord because of lies that have compromised their faith. Can that happen today? Does that happen today? He says, Timothy, if you're going to fight the good fight, back in verse 18, here's the first thing you've got to do. This is absolutely urgent that you get this right. You have to have a proper perspective. So he says, first of all then, I urge, this is urgent, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people? You know, even in our day today, there's this attitude among some that, you know, if, if everybody out there <laughs> was as smart as I am, if everybody was as moral as I am, if everybody had the right view of life that I have, man, would this world not be a much better place? Now, what does that exclusivity do it might be true but what does it do creates arrogance what does arrogance lead to division uh, it can also create a desire on the part of of the church for us to circle our wagons right guard against all those people out there that we don't trust matter of fact we don't even like them now, this is not to conf be confused with shepherding or protecting, especially the little ones within our church, from being exposed to harmful ideologies and behaviors. That's not what he's talking about here. But the discipleship that occurs within the church is meant to prepare us for our calling to go outside of the church with the gospel. In other words, we don't want to become cult-like here. I mean, that, that's the kind of thing that Jonah did. The Lord said, Jonah, take this message of repentance to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I don't want to. Why? I hate them. I hate them. 
I don't want them to repent. I want you to bring judgment upon them, Lord. I don't want them to know the blessings that you have bestowed upon us as Israelites. I don't want them to experience your blessings. I want them to receive your judgment. You remember what the Lord said? You can either do this through obedience or we can do this through another route. Have you ever been in the belly of a great fish? It's going to be a new experience for you, Jonah. But I wasn't asking for your opinion. I was giving you a commission. You go tell the Assyrians to repent. Did Jonah do that? Yeah, he did it. What happened? A terrible thing happened. Awful. Do you remember? The whole city repented. It was terrible. Jonah got depressed. Many Jewish Christians didn't want the Gentiles in the church. The Gentiles, who had been influenced by the nonsense of the Gnostics, thought themselves to be better than these legalistic Jews anyway. And so they didn't really care about fellowshipping with them. And rather than caring about taking the gospel of truth to a lost and dying world, Hymenaeus and Alexander had created these pockets of division with mystical nonsense. And so Paul writes back to Timothy and he says, look, first of all, th this is absolutely urgent. It's urgent for all people. Dwight Moody, traveling by train one time, had a young man to recognize him. And the, the, the young fellow went over and sat down next to him and said, Mr. Moody, I would love to be the kind of evangelist that you are. And Moody said, is that right? And he said, yes. He said, what are you doing right now? He said, well, I'm, I'm working aboard this train, but I, I would love to be an evangelist. And Moody said, well, good, but let me ask you this. Is the engineer a Christian? And the young man said, I don't know. And Moody said, then you're not ready to do what I do. Until you have a heart for those who are lost around you, you are not ready to do what I do. Let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you know where this verse is in your Bible. God so loved all the respectable, moral members of the middle class that he gave his only begotten son that whichever ones of them believe in him should not perish, but they should have eternal life. Where is that in your Bible? Do you see why Paul says to Timothy, first of all, here's where you got to start. This exclusive mentality within the church has got to go. So first of all then, and you're not going to like this, by the way. I'm just going to prepare you ahead of time. I urge that supplications, that's uh, daeus, comes from um, uh, a sense of need. You, you, you go to the Lord on behalf of someone because of their need. Prayers. This is the general word for making a request that is expressed in reverence. And by the way, this word is very uh, specific. Whenever you see communities come together, and they bring religious leaders together, and you see some guy come out, offer up uh, his words to Allah, and, and someone else offers up theirs to the God of the Indians or something. That's not prayer. That's not prayer. This word means 
you are speaking to the Lord. Very specific. Intercessions. That's when you plead on behalf of the need of another because you can identify with them. When you pray for the pain that they're going through, you know what that pain is like. I just finished answering an email this morning of a young lady in our church. She's a professor at the university and, and is sitting at the bedside of her father who is dying, who was here in church two weeks ago. And when I pray for her and her family, it's intercession. I know what it is like because I have sat at the bedside of my mother when she passed and with my father. And the fourth word is thanksgiving, Eucharistus. It means from a heart of gratitude. That's why they call it the Eucharist. When you come around the Lord's table. So we are to approach the Lord because of need. As we are praying in reverence to the Lord only, pleading on behalf of others with whom we can identify, and we give thanks for the Lord's mercy and grace. Now, this is where you begin, Timothy. And notice it's for all people. Now, that, that's going to strike some odd. I mean, what, what, do, what do you mean all? Because I, I pray for my needs. I pray for the needs of my family. I pray for, the, for people within our church. I might even pray for people I don't even know, somebody that's friends with, with, my, friend, with my family in Arkansas or friends of yours that are in the Ukraine. Or, you know, I might pray for some of them and our missionary partners and so forth. But, but all people, all people, that's pretty broad, including kings and those in high positions. Really? This is where it begins? You're going to pray for them? I mean, who was in the highest position of that day? Nero. You want me to pray for Nero? Do you see how shocking this must have been? This is like asking the Jews during the Holocaust to pray for Hitler. I mean, Nero became Rome's youngest emperor after his uncle Claudius died in 54 AD. So he's been on the throne now for about eight years, and he's a tyrant. He's a 26-year-old tyrant. He has killed his mother. He has killed his wife. He has killed his brother. And he murders Christians for sport. He will take Christians into the Colosseum and wrap them in skins. And then let loose the wild animals. And just watch as they rip them to pieces all for his entertainment. When he has his state dinners at night. He will call for the Christians to be brought out and tied to post and wrap them in pitch and oil and set them on fire. And they'll all laugh as they can see burning flesh and the smoke that rises from it into the night. You know one of his favorite things to do? Was to take Christian men, tie a limb each limb to a different horse and then whip the horses to go into different directions and watch them rip their bodies into pieces for his amusement. He was a fun guy to hang out with. You know what his government endorsed? Wasn't just abortion. <laughs> no, that was too dangerous. They, they, they embraced infanticide. That's where if a Roman citizen gave birth to a little girl instead of the boy that they wanted, 
they could legally starve them to death by just putting them out on the side of the road and leaving them to die. This is what got the early Christians into trouble. Got them into lots of trouble in the first century because they would go out and they would gather those children from the side of the road and they would care for them and bring them back to life and adopt them and raise them and teach them a respect for human life. They were among the first pro-lifers. When you take the gospel to spiritually darken people, Timothy, picketing, marching, arguing, it's not going to be as effective as praying for them. Let me ask you this. If Nero, think about this, if Nero had your son arrested for rescuing a baby on the side of the road, and he tied him to a post and set him on fire. Could you pray for Nero? Be honest. I mean, many would say, oh, yeah, I'd pray for him. I'd pray, Lord, destroy this horrible man. Take him out of office, please. Get rid of him. Let his soul rot in hell as far as I'm concerned. That's the same attitude the pagans had. The pagans? Yeah, the Romans. The Romans hated Nero too. The Romans forced Nero out of town. He, he fled Rome and then committed suicide. And everybody rejoiced. Paul has a different perspective. Paul, as a Christian, was once what? A blasphemer a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christ. He used to put Christians to death and he remembers how they had cause to hate him. Even after his encounter with Christ, Ananias doesn't want him coming to his home. Didn't trust him. The apostles don't want to have anything to do with him. The churches certainly didn't want him coming into their worship services. Yet he said earlier, the Lord, the Lord mercifully flooded me with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Is he saying that Christians who believe that Jesus is the Christ and, and who love the Lord may not always be on the same page with the Lord? Why do you think he gives us this instruction? Let's be clear about this. Engaging the world with the gospel does not mean that we accommodate them. It doesn't mean that we appease them to gain acceptance. You know, the, the, the church was never meant to reach those enslaved in sin by compromising truth with them. See, this is the mistake that the seeker-sensitive churches make. They think that if we sing their songs that they like, they think if we give them messages that they like, if we structure our services in a way that doesn't offend them, they, they, will, they will come because they, they like it. And once we've done that, now we can manipulate them into becoming Christians. And it's not true. You can't do that. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to unnecessarily be offensive to anybody. We don't beat them with truth in a way that turns them off and turns them away from Christ. 
But Paul's point is you begin where? You begin by praying for them. Then you engage them with truth in a very compassionate and loving way. You can't compromise truth. You know, when we gather in here on Sunday morning, this is not an hour of evangelism. This is an hour of worship. We gather here for discipleship. We gather here to be nourished in his word and encouraged in the fellowship of his people so that when we leave this place, we are equipped to do evangelism. Several years ago, Bill Hybels, who implemented the seeker-sensitive approach back in the early 80s, he confessed. He came out and publicly confessed it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So then why is it still being done? Well, it does draw crowds, but it doesn't work as a church. The Greek word for worship means to encounter the Lord with praise. So to to meet on Sundays and to sing songs that people enjoy, (laughs) to hear messages that people want to hear, misses the whole point of worship. Misses the whole definition of worship. You know, another misconception about the church is that we are to kind of create cultural warriors while we're here. You know, we're to be salt and light, right? Well, we are to be salt and light. But how does that occur? Salt and light occurs through transformed lives, not through political strategy. I mean, that's why Christ said to Pilate in John 18, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If that were true, you would see my disciples fighting. I know for a fact that political activism cannot transform a culture. So how do you know that? Well, if you're old enough, you will remember what was called the moral majority, right? I was part of it. Uh, There was a group called ACTV, uh, American Coalition for Traditional Values. And um, I happened to be elected from Kentucky to represent our state in D.C. And so I went there with Jerry Falwell and D. James Kennedy and all these guys, and we met with with Ronald Reagan. We went with Vice President George Herman Walker Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, whatever his name was, he's senior. Uh, Met with senators, met with congressmen. Um, What did we do? We shaped political reform. Good. Were they good reforms? You bet they were all of which were reversed in the following administrations. That has now given us the embracement of same-sex marriage that now seeks to change the gender of our children, that now uses the internet, TikTok, social media to destroy the morality of our children. That's not what the moral majority was hoping to produce. So what happened? There is no politics on earth that can change the human heart. That's why we engage the culture beginning with prayer before we proclaim biblical truth. Because it is in Christ and Christ alone that salvation and transformation occurs. Let me ask you this. What politician, don't don't say this out loud and don't whisper because I don't want anybody to be able to hear around you. But what politician 
do you find to be most offensive today? Who's the most pathetic, most dangerous? I realize there's a lot to choose from, so just think of it quickly. Which one do you despise the most? You find their opinions and their lifestyle and their policies are the most offensive. If you can narrow it down to one, you can think of several if you want. Who has done the most damage to our country in the last 20, 30 years? I mean, just heart-wrenching stuff. Have you got them in mind? Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that your sins were any less odious before a holy God prior to him saving you? Paul reminds Timothy, the priority of prayer is salvation. And it's not just for our friends and family. It's not even limited to those we like. Now, this doesn't mean that we are, are not to, to, to vote bad people out of office. Who wants bad people into office? Nobody. Even the Romans didn't want that. That's why they got rid of Nero. It doesn't mean that we don't desire godly leaders to be in office and, and that we don't do our part to elect them. That's, that's, that's fine. We ought to do that. We don't want people in office that are trying to destroy our culture. The point is this. He's just saying start where true change occurs. Start where true change occurs. And that's going to the Lord in prayer for all people even those you don't like, even those you don't agree with. And if you want to be effective in this, this has got to be a priority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this does not mean that Paul is saying, look, we only pray for those who reign over us because it will, their transformation will benefit us. <laughs> you know, we will, we will now be able to live in greater peace and with greater prosperity and we'll be able to live in the absence of persecution. That's not the motivation here. He's talking about the life we live impacts the testimony we have. That's what he's talking about. The life we live impacts the testimony we have. Anyone in here, anybody, has been, has, who, who was turned off by the gospel in your earlier life because of some Christian with spiritual B.O. who hounded you about your habits, who dogged you because of your dress, who gave you the impression that they were almost glad you were going to hell? God hates you, I hate you, and we all can't wait till you die and get what you deserve. There are people out there like that. A, a peaceful, quiet, dignified life means I don't agree with everything you're doing. But that will not keep me from caring about you. That will not keep me from praying for you. And I really hope that someday I have earned the right to share with you just how amazing God's grace is. So amazing, it saved a guy like me. Like me. Did you know that in 52 days of ministry, Christ was accused six times of one sin? Do you know what the sin was? They accused Christ of sinning. What was the sin? Same sin every time. The Jewish leaders felt that he could not be a man of God because he was rubbing shoulders with sinners. 
tax collectors, thieves, adulterers, prostitutes. I mean, how can Christ be holy and care about people like that? Did you hear about what took place at that well in Sychar? Did you hear about that lady that he encountered there? She'd been married five times and was living with some guy. That's who he associates with. That's who he talks. That's who he shares with. That's who he offers eternal life to. Are you kidding me? How many of you even know a prostitute by name? Don't raise your hand on that unless you're Jen King or one of the ladies who works with Natalie's sisters. That's a ministry that reaches out with the gospel to those enslaved in that world. So I don't expect you guys to know the name of any prostitute. But Paul said, I wrote you this earlier about not associating with ungodly people. But I wasn't talking about the ungodly of this world. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to share the gospel with anyone. He said, I was talking to you about those who are so-called Christians who were living as fornicators, so-called Christians who were living as drunkards. Your light for Christ cannot shine when it is clouded by your sin. That's why he says, live a dignified life so your witness might be believable. You know what an ad hominem argument is, right? When you can't handle someone's argument, what do you do? You point the finger at them. You try to discredit them because you can't handle their argument. Politicians use this all the time. You know, they can't defend their record, and so they try to dig up dirt on the other guy and claim that he is worse, so vote for me. Paul says, don't live in a way that the world can argue against the truth of God's word because of the way you are living your life. You live a peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified life. So no man can make an ad hominem argument against the gospel because of you. You know, they may not agree with you, but you are the best employee they've ever had. They may not like the fact that you are a Christian, but they can't argue with the fact that you're the best friend that, that anybody could have ever given them. They can't argue with the fact that you're the most honest, most compassionate, you are the kindest person they've ever known. See, that's what's good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. That's what that means. Now, here's a very controversial thing. It says, the Lord by nature is merciful and gracious and therefore desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This verse, boy, has it been taken out of context and the arguments have been made. It goes like this. If God is sovereign over all his creation, and he is, and he desires all people to be saved, and he does, ergo, all men will be saved. It's called universalism. You know what that's called? They call it universalism. Those who understand the truth call it bad hermeneutics because it contradicts Christ and it contradicts the Bible in a host of other places. So let's not take this verse out of context. Paul is addressing a problem with false teachers, right? Specifically Hymenaeus and Alexander who were creating um, an exclusivity within the church that downplayed compassion for the lost. 
You're going to find in verse 8 that men were arguing over the finer points of theology and forgetting the main message is the grace of God for those who are spiritually dead. And so Paul reminds Timothy, the love of our Lord is for all people regardless of race, all people regardless of nationality, all people regardless of social status, all people regardless of influence, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether king or peasant, it doesn't matter. There are only two groups of people on earth. Those who will know the just wrath that their sins have earned in the presence of a holy God and those who will be reconciled with him by the redemptive death of Christ our Lord. But the heart of God never takes delight in the punishment of anyone. So well, how do you know that for a fact? The word here for desire is not bolomai. It's not bolomai. That's what has to do with God's will by decree. Who can thwart the will of God? No one. When the Lord sets forth his bolomai, this is what's going to happen. That's not the word here. It's thelo. Thelo has to do with the desire of his heart. And when you look at this within its context, when you look at it within the context of all of Scripture, He's saying live with integrity so that all people might hear God's truth that will save men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth no matter what their position in life might be. Don't hunker down in your holy huddles, church, with an exclusive mentality and attitude like what the cults do. That's the kind of thing that false teachers lead you into. Don't go there. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, some again will say, oh, well, since the Lord takes no pleasure in any one perishing, all will be saved. Because after all, the Lord is not bound by his holiness, only his love. Who said that? Who says the Lord's not bound by his holiness? That interpretation comes from false teachers. You know what? They are at odds. How do you know they're false? They're at odds with Christ who said in Matthew 25, when he returns, he'll separate sheep from goats. <laughs> Some will go away into eternal punishment. Others into eternal life. You know, whenever you eisegetically take a verse out of context and you make it contradict what Christ said, you're in a bad position at that point. So does the Lord have compassion towards all men? Yes. No matter how bad they are? Yes. Even Saul of Tarsus? Yes. Is his desire that any should perish? No. Ergo, are all saved? No. Well, how do you reconcile that? I don't have to. I don't have to. All men are without excuse. All men are responsible for their sin. They are without excuse. Read it for yourself in Romans 1. It's not our calling to always be able to reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsibility. But it is our calling. It is our calling to take the truth to all men. And when we do that, it is absolutely amazing grace that saves people for his glory. 
whether in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the uttermost parts of the earth, including the meadowland of tomorrow. Do you know where the meadowland of tomorrow is? Here. That's what Kentucky means. It's an Indian word for the meadowland of tomorrow. The Lord said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I believe him. The Lord said, I desire that all be saved. Jew, Gentile, every tongue, tribe, and nation. I believe him. I believe him. The Lord says, not all men will be saved. I believe that too. So the point is, we don't discriminate as to who we pray for or to whom we take the gospel. When our hearts are in tune with his will, we pray for all people. All people, even those in high positions who may hate us and who persecute us. Christ, in his compassion for sinners, prayed for Jerusalem knowing they would reject him. Those who are born again in Christ will pray for those who currently reject him. Because that's who they are. And they are who they are because that's who he is. So Timothy, don't allow the church to lose heart for the lost. You pray. This is where you begin. You pray for all men. And you live in such a way you earn the right to teach the truth to all men. Do you have any questions about that? You can go to the connect table this morning or I'll be glad to meet with you in my study later this week. I am leaving immediately after this service. I will not be standing around. Uh, matter of fact, uh, we're going to close a little differently than normal because the rest of our staff has taken off. Uh, we have to be at the airport um, uh, by, I think it's 12, 15 or something. And so uh, I'm going to uh, be back Thursday, and I'll be glad to meet with you on Thursday, on Friday, uh, Whenever, if you have any questions about this, you have any opposition to something the Lord has said in his word, come, we'll be glad to discuss it, and, and I'll do my best to rightly handle the scripture uh, for you, and hopefully we can all then bow a knee uh, in submission to the authority of God's word. Now, before I close with a word of prayer, I want to just say uh, one thing to our women. Uh, Friday night, February the 15th, and Saturday on February the 18th, I want to encourage you to take advantage of a very special treat that only comes to Wellington once a year. I don't want you to miss it this year. I've heard that Lisa Hughes is absolutely excellent. Uh, she was just at the church where I'm going to a conference uh, this week, and I understand uh, did a terrific job. And so I, I want to uh, encourage you to take advantage. Scott Smith and uh, his friends, here at the church, are going to be leading in worship, and they are, they are excellent also. So this is just going to be a great opportunity for fellowship with the Lord and with those who love the Lord. And I, I want to really encourage you to do that. So if you would, go over here. If you're not already, go over here and register this morning, and please take advantage of this um, tremendous spiritually uh, enriching opportunity. Stand with me as we pray together. Lord, we, will, we want to, to, to pray this morning for this body of Christ, for this church, as we want to honor you with how we worship you. We want to honor you with how we pray. We want to honor you with how we live. And Lord, we want to honor you with how we teach your truth 
And we want to honor you with how we share that with others who are spiritually dead, just like we were. Trusting that you will make them alive in Christ, just like you did in our lives. And so, Lord, we want to be found faithful so that we will hear you say one day, well done. For it is in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.